Welcome to Failing Forward. I'm here with Holly Radice, who's telling us don't jump straight to digital. She's sharing lessons learned from cash transfer programming in the wake of the Ebola crisis that illustrated people have limits to how many new things they can roll out in the middle of stressful situations. Those limits aren't just for the communities. They're also for the staff and the financial service providers and the mobile network operators who are all impacted when there's a crisis of this magnitude. Holly, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Thanks so much, Emily. I'm Holly Radice, and I'm a cash and markets technical advisor for CARE. Tell us a little bit about some of your work before CARE, because part of the example you're talking about today is learning from not just CARE examples. Exactly. So I have been working in the cash and voucher assistance space for longer than maybe I want to say. Before CARE, I was a consultant and I was part of the review for the Food for Peace major cash transfer program that happened in response to Ebola in West Africa, so in Liberia and Sierra Leone, to capture the lessons learned related to the the entire operation, which were seven organizations, including CARE. So everything from how they went about to design their programs and what the impact was. You had to summarize your main learning from that experience in one or two sentences. What would it be? I would say that cash transfers work and also that we need to analyze our context really well for cash transfers to work very well. Because context analysis is such an important part of what you were talking about, tell us a little bit about the context of the example you're going to share. So this is 2015-2016 when these interventions were happening. In reality, most of the cash transfer work that was done was post-Ebola because, of course, at the time, it just wasn't safe for either international organizations, national organizations to be doing any type of work other than sensitization in uh, the affected communities. And when we're looking at Liberia and Sierra Leone, these are two countries that have really struggled to provide infrastructure, basic services to their populations. When we're looking at cash and voucher assistance, there was really a desire to use digital responses, e-transfers in cash parlance, to transfer to the communities. When we look at both Sierra Leone and Liberia, they're rather rural communities as well. So we don't have large concentrations of urban populations throughout the country. So hard to reach communities with limited infrastructure and also similar structural issues in a lot of places that care works where we're dealing with high rates of chronic poverty, high rates of illiteracy, some issues related to numeracy as well. In particular, these two countries have gone through cycles of crisis, which always makes it a bit of a challenge to take a step forward. And as you're talking to other implementers and particularly in the context of COVID-19, what are some of the key context variables you recommend people really focus on when they're trying to figure out what their context looks like? This crisis, as in any crisis, is going to evolve over time. So what we're dealing with right now and what we're going to deal with in one month and what we're going to deal with in six months is going to be different. And so when we want to be able to say, can we use a market-based approach of which cash and voucher assistance is part of, we're going to have to look at what existing infrastructure is there. So what do we know about the communities where we're working and what do we know about what we call financial service providers, which are the delivery mechanism or the means to be able to deliver to the communities? And what are those communities comfortable? with. One of the variables that will come into play here also could be happening in terms of financial decisions made at a country level. What we also saw in Ebola was that there was really a problem in terms of liquidity, meaning that even if we wanted to be able to do cash transfers, some of the cities or towns or smaller villages, they just didn't have enough cash in hand to be able, if you're using a digital means, you wouldn't be able to cash out because there's just simply not enough money to go around. And there have been some instances now where the banking industries are 
are changing, some for the good. In Kenya, there has been an elimination of the costs for mobile transfers with using mobile money, which is a really positive development. So those are some of the type of external things that we want to be able to look at. Really important is to understand the markets because cash and voucher assistance only works when markets are functioning and that people have access to them. And that's going to change over time. And when we talk about markets, it's not just a physical place. It is also, it can be a market stream. Uh, so that can be any type of good and service that a community could need. So coming back to the example of post-Ebola cash transfers, what went wrong? One of the biggest problems was there was a great push to use e-transfers when neither the infrastructure nor the populations and certainly not the staff of the organizations were able to handle that. And I can give an example from CARES work. So we were working in Sierra Leone at the time. And in our first phase of our funding, we were targeting 5,000 households and we had wanted to use an emerging mobile money service. We did two transfers. It was really painful, lots of headaches for our teams and even more so for the households that you know were crisis affected. And we're really looking forward to being able to have these cash transfers to rebuild their livelihoods. And this was a similar type of experience across the other organizations. What were some of the details of that? So what didn't work is that we made assumptions in terms of what the financial service provider was able to deliver on. So sometimes they think that they have very good coverage in a particular area in terms of cell phone network. But when we get into a specific village or a group of villages, it may not be the case. We can even see that in the United States or even in the corners of our apartments as we're here in lockdown. We know in some places we don't actually have very good cell phone access. Secondly, we underestimated people's understanding of how to use them. As we know with anything new within our communities, we need to understand what the limitations and potential opportunities are in our community. Even though some people may have been used to using a phone, they did not know the different steps that they had to take to be able to confirm that they received the transfer, that they knew how to cash out. And there was also some issues related to the financial service providers and uh, organizations like CARE in terms of what we expected and what we thought they could deliver on. So that makes it difficult for us to communicate that back out to the communities. We did move from trying to use a digital platform to another type of service, which was in theory supposed to be an e-transfer through an aggregator, in the end did what we call cash in hand, which ended up being a good middle ground in the first phase of the work that we did, um, but it wasn't what we expected. Did you notice differences between different groups of people that some people had better access or it worked more effectively for some than others? In the early stages, it really depended on where you were. But for the most part, we can say that people that are more familiar with using these types of technologies are going to be better off. And those are usually not the people in the village. Often in care, we are still working in rural areas. Those folks are not the ones who are understanding how to use this. As we know, overall, women's access to mobile phones in general has increased. But when we're talking about mobile phone ownership, it may not be the case that they have access to them themselves in their household. GSMA, which is the global system for mobile communications. They did a study not so long ago and they said that 443 million women were unconnected, meaning that they had a less awareness of mobile internet and mobile internet services as compared to men in a lot of the contexts that we're working in. And when we look at refugee populations, there was a really large gender gap. In Tanzania, they'd showed that there was a 42% gender gap in mobile phone ownership. So when we talk about phones in the household, it depends who has access to it and who understands how to use it women are less likely to be able to access mobile phones or use them effectively. Refugee populations are less likely. Rural populations have some additional barriers. Are there any other key demographics there that we need to be looking out for? And when we look at other populations, such as the elderly or people with disabilities, they tend to have less access to phones overall. 
there are some outliers. When we look at the case for Somalia, Somalia has one of the highest rates of use of mobile phones in the world, and the gender gap between men and women is quite small. So again, it's really looking at your context and understanding who was already using a delivery mechanism and how can we build upon that. One of the things we talked about before the podcast was everybody's push to try to introduce new digital things because mobility is restricted. Talk about the challenges of introducing something new in a crisis and how that played out in Ebola. When we look at the push to use e-transfers, there was great aspirations and less of a capacity on the side of all actors along the chain. The idea was that these communities, we weren't going to be able to reach them because of a similar type of quarantining that happened, is happening now, also happened during Ebola. Entire communities had to be quarantined within the communities. They uh, were not able to have the same type of activities. So it makes sense that we want to be able to use mobile technologies. But again, the infrastructure wasn't there. The expectations in terms of how we understood them as humanitarian actors were out of sync from what the providers were able to do. We sometimes make an assumption as humanitarians that a private sector actor is going to want to work with us because they have humanitarian principles. While that may be the case, it's not always the case. We need to be able to learn how to make a business case and learn to speak their language. And that was one of the observations we had when we had learning sessions with private sector actors Talk a little bit about that mismatch in expectations between the private sector providers and the humanitarian. One of the bigger issues is not asking the right types of questions or not using the same type of language. What is the bottom line that private sector actor would need to know to make a decision to offer us services? And we also sometimes don't know how to articulate what we're really looking for. Is it that we're just looking for a payment platform? Or are we looking for something that's able to connect mass messages that we would need to be able to do in sensitization, which is something which could be very interesting for us to do in the case of an epidemic or a pandemic? Are we looking for something that would allow us to collect data that would be helping us to be able to do voice recognition to confirm the recipient. Unless we're able to understand what we want the technology to do, it's hard for a private sector actor to be able to, they're not mind readers, and they have certain limitations in terms of what they can do, which may be restricted by laws and regulations in the country where we as humanitarians that are working in a technical sector may be less aware of. And it's really important that we are involving our colleagues from and operations side, particularly the finance and logistics teams, they usually are more conversant in terms of the rules and regulations. Thinking about that idea of what the regulations are, what are some good sources of information that would tell us about that in a given context? There are good tools out there to help us to be able to ask the right questions. And I always point our colleagues in the field to a tool that Mercy Corps put out a few years ago that uh, helps us to understand financial service providers. It lays out questions that we need to be able to ask ourselves first and foremost as an organization and as a team, and then questions that we can use to ask a potential financial service provider once we know what we want. So that's a little bit on our side around the procurement and the working with the private sector. How about a community's ability to absorb something new in the middle of a crisis? As most of us are experiencing, it's a little bit difficult to take in new information <laughs> during this time, especially when we're talking about communities that may have very precarious livelihoods to begin with. We really need to have some empathy towards them and understanding what they're able to uptake on. What we saw is that as part of our standard operating procedures, we need to be working in sensitization as key steps and not making assumptions that we do sensitization once and it's over and done with. And a good practice that we saw coming out of Ebola and also other work that we're doing is making 
making sure that we are really embedding sensitization throughout the process so that people know not only how what it is that they're supposed to be getting, how they're supposed to be getting it, and how they can lodge any feedback or complaints, which connects to our broader work. One of the things that came out of this study is to not make those assumptions that the communities are understanding after the first round of transfers, that we need to monitor that closely and we need to be in the communities and making sure we are taking the time after the second and maybe even after the third time, recipients understand the process. CARE just released some guidance on remote data collection for monitoring, where they said you should plan 25 to 40% extra time to do a survey over the phone than you would in person. Is there an equivalent for doing mobile distribution or trying to build sensitization in? How much longer does it take? For most of our countries of presence, if they're doing cash and voucher assistance for the first time, I would say that two months is is ambitious for planning. I would like to say that we could be a little bit faster. At this point, one of the things for us to be thinking about in care is how can we be planning for a recovery phase? And I would say working in two to three months worth of everything from understanding and selection of a financial service provider and then working in the communities building up to that. So you're saying start planning now? Absolutely. I mean, for those that are doing cash and voucher assistance on the ground now, and last year we saw that we did this in 37 contexts, so it's quite a bit of our countries of operation. And the guidance that we have put out is, you know, looking to see how can we adapt what we're doing, asking the questions in the communities of the financial service providers and in our peers, how is that changing what we have to do? Of course, we want to be able to make sure that everyone is safe um, and that it is still feasible. Are the markets still functioning? And also really take into consideration that it is not not a static process. And we should be engaging with our financial service provider along the way to make sure that they are still capable of delivering because they're going to be affected by this crisis as well. If we're not doing cash and voucher assistance right now in a particular country of presence, I really recommend that for rapid gender analysis, that they're including aspects related to financial inclusion of women, access to mobile money, access to different types of financial service providers in their RGA so that we know what exists. Also understanding how people want us to be giving assistance to them. You know, maybe they don't want cash assistance. Maybe they want a combination of cash and something else. Understanding what kind of vendors exist in the communities already. I highly recommend that we are engaging with our cash working groups. There's a lot of global guidance that has come out. We might be able to see how the organizations in our areas are adapting. What are some of the financial service providers that they have experienced with before? What kind of rates have they negotiated in terms of making transfers? And that will help us to start to think about how do we do this financial service provider assessment? With the cash working groups, we'll be able to think about what is the transfer value that makes the most sense. These are some of the steps that we can take right now if we either if we're doing cash or we're not doing cash um, and, and get ourselves in a good position. Most of the countries that we have looked at that have adapted their programming have been able to pivot pretty quickly to change either the frequency of the transfers that they're doing, the amount of the transfers, uh, or also pairing it with sensitization in terms of facing of people and recipients, doing of other types of measures to make sure that we're lowering the transmission rates related to any type of transfers that we might be doing. One recommendation is to adapt existing programming as much as possible and, and push through existing systems that we've negotiated or that maybe other projects we're working on. For people yes. who are doing this for the first time, one thing we get caught on a lot is the cost of the cash transfer and negotiating that with the mobile service provider or the financial provider. 
that. Do you have any recommendations about that? I do. I would say engage with your cash working group. In some places, the cash working groups, they have done negotiation collectively to be able to get rates which are, are more reasonable and more standard. The good thing is, is that mobile transfers tend to be less expensive, but we have to invest in human resources to make sure that the intended recipients feel comfortable with the process and empowered and are doing this in a gender sensitive way, which meets with our principles as care. Any final words of wisdom for folks who might be trying to either expand or start cash programming? Check out the Care Shares page. There's a cash and voucher assistance page, and we're updating it. You can also check out the Cash Learning Partnership CALPS webpage to see updated guidance. Right now, there is a live document. People are adding in every day related to COVID-19 and how we can adapt our program for that. Start thinking now of how we're able to use market-based approaches in, uh, in the recovery to this, because what we really want to be able to do is to get people back to at least being able to have functioning markets where they were, have their livelihoods not be as disrupted as, as possible. Thank you so much for joining us, Holly. Thank you, Emily. Holly also advocates that we start planning now for the recovery phase and how we could use cash transfers to help people bounce back when the initial wave of the pandemic is over. Thanks so much for joining us on Failing Forward. Stay tuned for our next episode where we learn more about real-time data collection and what COVID-19 is teaching us about how we can get better at it.